Across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies. My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? Delicious. <laughs> Good afternoon. Welcome to Flavour with Alan Alder, Sue Bailey and me, Matt Bentman. Today our features include some goodies from the past, ones that you might have missed the first time around. They include local chefs and foodie people talking about their best ever meal. And that includes Alex Rushma from Vanderlyle, Susanna Wansel from Meadows and Benny Peverelli from Pint Shop. And we'll also hear from Rosie Sykes and Tristan Welsh with ideas for cooking onions. Stephen Marsh will be talking about how he came to develop Pinkster Gin, an unusual and entertaining story. And Nikki Senyard will be explaining how she wrote Lateral Cooking, an unusual and entertaining book. We'll also hear from Tim Haywood on what it's like reviewing restaurants for the Financial Times. And there'll be plenty of news and a rundown of some choice culinary-related jobs available in the city. Let's begin with gin. A hugely popular drink, and there's one made locally in Newton that has proved to be highly successful. Sue spoke to Stephen Marsh about how he set up Pinkster Gin. Pinkster is a hobby that's grown wildly out of control. I started making Pinkster um, about 14 years ago, following a, uh, a problem I had with yeast and sugar. I had four years on the wagon. Two, after two years on the wagon, you go to your doctor and say... I've got a drinking problem and I can't. They tend not to take it quite as seriously as you think they should. And, um, and eventually, the fifth doctor I saw said he knew what the problem was. And he thought the problem was yeast and sugar, so I cut yeast and sugar out of my diet for two years. And then he said, right, you, uh, two years, he said, right, you can start drinking again, but then you drink gin or vodka. And vodka's really boring, but gin, I think, was fantastic, but doesn't go with food. So I started to experiment to see whether I could make a gin that I could drink with food. And it took me um, a year before I had a eureka moment when I discovered that raspberries, fresh raspberries, took the edge off juniper. And then I spent another three and a half years um, perfecting the balance of botanicals to give me a clean and refreshing drink that I could drink all evening. I had no intention to do it commercially. Three or four years later, I was persuaded by friends that I should do it commercially. In in other words, um, I had several friends who said, look, Please. <laughs> Please. And they put up some money. And so we gave it a try. Um, and that was five years ago now. We started early early 2013. I made 4,000 litres of Pinkster in 2013. I made 100,000 litres of Pinkster in 2017. And I'm going to make 200,000 litres in 2018. We now sell it around the world. But we only make Pinkster during the raspberry season. We start late June. And we carry on to the end of October. Um, I think much more like a wine producer, actually, than a distiller, because I'm very interested in the crop. Uh, we've had a, an interesting season so far. Um, actually, the raspberries are slightly later than normal. And, um, and we, 
you can get English raspberries at the moment, but they don't really have the flavour. Foreign raspberries never have the flavour. Oh. <laughs> you know, so I'm not going to start making pinks with Moroccan raspberries in December. No. Because they just don't do it. So do you source your raspberries locally? The, yeah, the raspberries are grown in Milton. We're, we're very local. We have very, very, we have very, very low food miles, um, and we have absolutely no waste. Because when I finish making Pinkster, I'm left with raspberries. And there are other brands running uh, TV campaigns at the moment. And I, you know, just asked, had to ask, you know, what do they do with the spent fruit if they're making it? You know, uh, what we do with the spent fruit is that um, we put the berries in jars and sell them as boozy berries. The berries that, that aren't good enough to go in jars, we turn into gin jam. And when we finish making the gin jam, the liquid the berries have been preserved in, we are now bottling and selling as Pinkster Royale. Now, that is, a- and it is absolutely superb, a dash of Pinkster Royale in a glass of Prosecco. So it's a bit like a sort of cassisi idea. Yes, absolutely. But it's, a, but it's a, it, it's a skinny cassis because mm. we don't add sugar. Ah, so you're just using natural sugars from the raspberries. Well, we don't, oh, yeah. Perfect. And yeah. we don't touch it, but a dash of that in a glass of Prosecco. Mm. The dryness of the Pinkster Royale complements the sweetness of the Prosecco. It's intensely raspberry. It sounds gorgeous. And is this the new product that you've just literally launched? Well, we launched it a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, four weeks ago. Um, if somebody had said to me six months ago that I would have a third byproduct out of Pinkster, mm. I wouldn't have believed them. Mm. Um, uh, but actually we have. And, and I thought, this is interesting, we'll do it. We had enough for about uh, just under 3,000 bottles. We've sold 1,000 bottles in, in, in four weeks, and I'm now worrying that <laughs> I've built up demand I'm not going to be able to satisfy. Oh, crumbs, yes. So, um, uh, but it's, it's available from uh, Cambridge Wine Merchants. It, it's a byproduct, so you know we're trying to work out how we can make more of it next year. Make more gin. <laughs> make well, we make more gin. gin yeah, more gin. and we're you know we're doubling production this year. We're going to make two hundred thousand liters. Um, it's quite possible that we may end up making two hundred and fifty thousand liters. But uh, the Pink's Royale is at the end of the chain, and we have to see how it goes. And I I, I won't compromise on it. We also make some some fantastic pudding gins, which we have under the brand name of Hedge Pig. Ah oh, yes, I've heard of Hedge. Yes. yes, yes. And we're going to we're going to drink some this evening. Mm, excellent, excellent. Tell me a bit more about Hedge Pig. Why Hedge Pig? Well, Hedge Pig. It's a lovely name. Um, what we wanted was because I, I used to be really keen on on uh, port and pudding uh, pudding wines, mm. but I I still really can't drink them. Mm. And um, I'd always made fruit gins, and actually fruit gins are really good with puddings. Oh, now I haven't tried that. Yeah. So, um, you know, they're, they're sweet, but they're gin-based rather than wine-based. Um, and, um, uh, and, and tonight we're having an elderflower pudding gin, uh, which is absolutely delicious. Uh, we picked the name Hedge Pig because it was a made-up word. We made it up, um, and we wanted something that had connotations of foraging, because actually we do go out, you know, most of our ingredients are forage rather than commercially That's produced. That's lovely. Uh, that, that's such a lovely story. But also, isn't a hedge pig a hedgehog? It is. Another name for hedgehog. And 50p for every bottle we sell uh, is donated to the Hedgehog Preservation Society. Can I just ask, did you have a background in distilling? Or no, not at all. Um, no, I, I, I read history at university. Ah. Um, I read history. Uh, so all I knew about distilling, I'd done a module on um, 
uh, on um, the ancient Egyptians and distilling. So all I knew about distilling was from ancient Egyptians. Um, do you know it hasn't really changed I terribly much? Your production is in Newton. Our production yep. is in Newton. Um, and uh, it was in Bali, it was in my garden shed. We, um, uh, for three years we were doing it in my garden shed. Um, and I like, always like saying my garden shed because everybody imagines some... Six, the rustic shed. Six, six, six foot by four foot. Um, actually it was a 2,000 square foot barn. But, oh, sorry, <laughs> but hey, big shed, big but, shed. Big shed, but, you know, but it was in my garden. What a great story that is. Thanks to Stephen Marsh for the interview and for the gin. Time for some food news now. We begin with food vans and pop-ups. Oyster Lab will be at Café Foy this weekend and also on the 7th and 8th of August. On the 11th of August, they will be at the Cambridge Cookery School, on the 13th at the Tap Room in St Ives, and then back to Café Foy on the 14th and 15th of August. Though we should mention that the Café Foy dates are weather-dependent. This Wednesday, the 4th of August, the Steak and Honour van will be at the Queen's Head in Newton. Uh, on the 14th of August at the Queen's Head, it will be Waffle & Co. And on the 21st, Gorilla Kitchen. Providing the food at Thirsty in Chesterton Road on Tuesday will be Vonnie's Balkan Express. On Wednesday, Buffalo Joe's. There's a new van on Thursday called Oreno. On Friday, it will be Wandering Yak. And on Saturday, Cook's Nest. And Hanoi Rice Hat, a great favourite of flavour, contributor Dave Fox, is at the Cherry Tree in Haddenham on the 6th of August, at Brewboard in Harston on the 7th, and at North Stowe Green on the 12th. And if you run a food van and you'd like to be featured in this section, please send details to flavour at cambridge105.co.uk by the Wednesday before our Saturday broadcast. Remember, we are fortnightly. More news later, uh, but now is a great time to buy onions. They're recently harvested and at their best. We asked Tristan Welch of Parker's Tavern and local chef Rosie Sykes for ideas for using them. But first, Flavour's occasional contributor Liz Budd has a few words on the subject. I don't like snails or toads or frogs or strange things living under logs, but... Onions are part of the group of plants called alliums. Hugh Fernley-Whittingstall says that while onions are most frequently used as a foundation flavouring in stocks, stews and sauces, they can also be roasted as their natural sugars caramelise deliciously. Onions can take at least an hour of slow cooking in a covered pan and longer if they're part of a soup or stew. If you keep the heat gentle, they become sweet, complex and delicious. The one thing you must guard against is burning, and as soon as the caramelisation goes too far, from golden brown to almost black, the results are bitter. I just got some new seasoned onions, which were absolutely beautiful they still had their long green tails on and i just roasted them in the oven with some cider some sage and a tiny bit of stock and some olive oil or butter uh, just cook them really really slowly and they become beautifully caramelized um, and then there are so many things you can do with them you could put them on a tart with some anchovy you just put them on on toast with some lovely cheese 
they just um, they become very rich and special. But the other really nice thing to do, which I do more often with red onions, is slice them quite thickly and then marinate them in lemon juice and salt, and they'll go really vibrant pink. And and slice them as a whole round and try and keep them as whole as you can, and then put them onto a griddle pan. Or the barbecue, absolutely lovely on the barbecue. And then they are really lovely in a salad with some tomatoes or some griddle courgette. Or they, they make a really nice accompaniment to many, many things. I don't like shoes that pinch your toes or people who squirt you with the garden hose. But, mm, I love onions. Onions, my nemesis. But actually, the building block of so many great recipes well do you know one of my really really uh, uh, favorite things with an onion is just to finely slice it caramelize it in a frying pan and um, and that's by adding a touch of olive oil in a hot pan add the onions to it pinch of salt straight away and then um, if you've got any thyme or any hard herbs pop them in now and then and lower the heat in the pan and gently caramelize them away and that's that that, that that requires a bit of patience let it take half an hour 45 minutes to caramelize at least and when you're happy with the caramelization of it if they start to caramelize a little bit too much on the bottom of the pan add a touch of water in the beginning but towards the end of it add a splash of vinegar because that just really lifts it all up it's quite delicious then if you take those caramelized onions you spread it on some puff pastry and you know what yeah, okay, we make puff pastry here in the restaurant, but at home, we just roll out some pre-rolled puff pastry, spread it with caramelized onions, bake it in the oven. My goodness. And do you know what my, my boys really like, actually, is some brie broken on top so it just melts on top. Caramelized onion tart within, well, within probably about 45, 50 minutes. However, minimal effort. You can have at least half a bottle of wine in that time as well. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't cooking wonderful? Such delicious ideas from such an everyday vegetable. And the music in that feature was I Love Onions by Susie Christie. On to our second news roundup now. Finboy's Fish Butchery in Mill Road is now open for afternoon food from 3pm. Here's Richard Stokes from Finboy's with some details about the menu. Between our lunch service finishing at 3 and our dinner service finish, uh, starting at 6.30, we'll be offering an all-day menu um, serving oysters and champagne and, and um, simply cooked shellfish, um, freedom air platters, um, prawns, you know, nice shellfish things to eat in the afternoons. Maurizio's in Mill Road is closed for a holiday, but it will reopen on Tuesday the 2nd of August and be open every day except Sunday. That's from 5 till 10 p.m. A new coffee shop has opened in Dolphin Way in Stapleford. Called Pickles and Beans, it's got coffees, speciality teas, cakes and other essentials. Opening hours are 8.30 to 5, Monday to Saturday, with plans to extend these hours. Prepped Food Co. is offering 15% of any three ready meals and 25% of any five in recognition of the fact that it's the school summer holidays. Good for them. There's a free lunch of halal chicken curry served with rice, onion barges, veg pasta and dessert, with gluten and dairy-free options available. 
Now, this will be for local families at Stories Field Centre in Eddington on Wednesday the 11th of August. There'll be crafting activities for the children as well. And if you'd like to find out more, there is plenty of information online at storiesfieldcentre.org.uk. Alex Rushmer featured prominently in a piece in The Guardian last Wednesday for his strawberry ragu and his lapsang souchong fries. Alex has since tweeted the story behind the ragu and given more details about how to make it and how to use it. It's a really interesting and inspiring read. Exciting, in fact. Bottles of Arbery's Gutter and Stars Pinot Noir are now bottled, labelled and ready to order. They're £24 a bottle and you can order from the Gutter and Stars website. It will sell out quickly, though. The Histon Smokehouse runs a market with several food stalls. Now, if you want to book a stall, it's £18 a day from Wednesday to Friday and £20 a day at the weekend. Now, on the other hand, if you want to shop at the market, depending on what day you go, there are stalls such as Raised in Rampton, Rennet and Rind, Bicycle Bakes, Bumble and Oak and Prestige Donuts, amongst others. The Smokehouse also has a restaurant open at lunchtime and in the evenings. It's at number 20, The Green, Histon. On Cambridge Sustainable Foods website now, there's some videos of local chefs cooking recipes which focus on reducing our impact on the climate, for example, by using foods that are in season. The chefs are Blake from Mucky Fingers, Rosie Sykes, Alcea from Bieber's Indian Cookery, Jamie from No Moo Ragu, and David Underwood from Orison Sons. Here's a reminder that you can get free food in and around Cambridge that would otherwise go to waste. Just download the Olio app to your smartphone or tablet and you'll be updated with details every time you look. And there's another app called Too Good To Go which offers unsold food from restaurants and shops often at less than half price. Rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply repackaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home instead of it being binned at the end of the day's trading. Recent magic bags have been offered by Costa Coffee and the Grand Arcade, Nine's Global Buffet at Cambridge Leisure Park, Ibis by Cambridge Station, Nissa Local in Hardwick and in Cherry Hinton, Spa in Stapleford, Full Circle in Norfolk Street, Kimoy in Burley Street and Budgeons in Arbury. Moving on to our third feature now and continuing with the theme of goodies from the past, here is a story I always liked. This one is from April 2017 when I met with Andy Clark and his wife Hannah and they run the Rural Coffee Project, part of the Cambridge street food scene. We were travelling along and we had that same conversation again. Come on, we know we want to work together. What do we want to do? And Hannah said, I want a cafe. What do you want in life? And I jokingly said, a Land Rover Defender. And Hannah said, no, 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 we're a bit seriously, like, what do you want to do? In and I said, oh, hang on a minute. What if we put your passion for a cafe and my desperate need for a Land Rover Defender? Please, Hannah, let me have a Land Rover Defender. <laughs> <laughs> I, do, I do care about coffee, don't worry. <laughs> This is Andy and Hannah Clark and their sheepdog, Bella. They run the Rural Coffee Project, which is one of the latest street food vans to appear in Cambridge. Except it's not a van, 
It's a big old Land Rover. Daisy the truck is a Land Rover 127, manufactured yep. in 1990. Yeah, well, she was owned by the RAF, a mobile drone and missile testing centre or a command station. So she was full of computers that flew drones and missiles. So as a bit of tongue-in-cheek, sometimes we say, to make tea, not war. <laughs> no! No! Wait! What is it? Do you want a cup of tea? That's a passion of mine as well, because I actually studied nutrition at university, of which I did my dissertation in tea. So, <laughs> so there is background. This is today's special. Although we're called the Rural Coffee Project, simply because coffee sells better than tea, we have an equally good quality set of teas, 12 different teas that we offer, uh-huh. all loose leaf teas in tea gems. So that is proper loose leaf tea, individually portioned and put into a silk bag so that it's not floating around in your car by a company called Candula, who are also very local. Mm. She lives in Wilburton. She keeps in regular contact with us and we chat and have a laugh about tea and coffee and working in this industry. You must, you must drink our tea! This is our special on today. Mm-hmm. This is mint, Moroccan mint, which mm-hmm. we grow at home. So I suppose not quite Moroccan, but... <laughs> unless, you, unless you commute from Morocco every yeah, day. Yeah, but not quite, I'd love it, yeah. <laughs> with Candula green tea, which is Ceylon green tea. And there's a bit of sugar in there as well, because that's what the Moroccans do. If you've ever been there and had their tea, it's quite sweet. We've gone for a halfway house because we want to help people maintain their teeth in their mouth rather than, you know... (laughs) Right. I'll put the kettle on then. Yeah. The idea of this is to be a very fresh drink in the summer. You know, this is a very high-quality green tea, so you've got a lot of antioxidants and everything in there. Very refreshing. Small amount of caffeine. There is a bit of caffeine in green tea, but not too much. And then you've got that fresh mint in there as well, which gives that really fresh flavour. And then we've managed to join Food Park and offer good quality hot drinks here for not only the customers, but the traders as well. Andy, can I get another one of them chai lattes? Yeah. Two, please, mate. Two hot chocolates and three burgers and two curries and, yeah. and all sorts and that, of... And that's just a Wednesday. <laughs> that's just a Wednesday lunchtime. And so it's really kicked off better than we thought. However... I think a lot of that is due to passion and hard work. It doesn't just happen. Yeah. It's literally seven-day-a-week lifestyle for us at the moment. We'd, you, you, you throw everything into it. Also, we're flying without a navigational system and can't oh, seem to change funny. course. Miss, are you telling us absolutely everything? Not exactly. We're also out of coffee. <gasps> Now, you're called the Rural Coffee Project, and your menu says that your blend is locally roasted. It's with a great small company called Sidewalk, who've just opened a cafe in Caldicott, and they have their roastery on location there. And we're their only trade suppliers, so we actually use their special CB23 blend, which we developed with them, which is a mixture between a Brazilian Arabica and a Vietnamese Robusta, which we find works brilliantly with our coffee machine. It seems to be a massive hit. Our customers seem to love it and keep coming back for more. Time for a quick coffee lesson. Hannah mentioned Arabica and Robusta beans. Now, roughly speaking, the best coffees are all Arabicas, and the highest quality blends are pure Arabica ones. They have a sweeter, softer taste with tones of sugar, fruit and berries. They live in the subtropics on high slopes, so they're hand-picked because large machine pickers can't get to them. I'll be back. Robusta again, generally speaking, has a harsher flavour with a grain-like overtone and a peanutty aftertaste. As the name suggests, Robusta is more robust. It's hardier to disease, it can be grown on the plains. How's it your land? I can't tell. You can tell me I'm a doctor. Not those type of plains. And can be machine harvested, making the picking faster and cheaper. 
Now, robusta does not necessarily mean worse. These days, some speciality robustas are matching speciality arabicas for quality. Robustas also contain twice the caffeine, giving you that hit in the morning. Hannah and Andy's CB23 blend is 80% Brazilian single origin arabica and 20% Vietnamese robusta. We get quite a lot of positive feedback on the blend because what we did when we developed it, rather than go for something fashionable, something that's sort of hip to go for at the moment, We've just tried a load of coffees, blended them with the, the samples that we got, and just said to people, what do you like the taste of? Yeah. We were quite determined at the beginning of that, that we would go on taste and not on fashion or anything like that. People say that our coffee is one of the only coffees that they have without sugar, because it's actually sweet enough, not too bitter, not too acidic. It's actually sweet enough to drink without sugar, so people really like that. Watch out for innuendo when you're talking coffee. So I guess um, a quick steam and a grind. Maybe. Christine <laughs> McRae. <laughs> this man knows what he wants. I haven't got any beans in there now. Four seasons in one day. This job is heaven in summer and hell in winter. <laughs> and people always say to us, oh, coffee, oh, it's a cold day. That must be your best days. But actually, no, it's not. Nice weather, people sitting outside, that's when people drink tea and coffee. So Today we had a selection of homemade date flapjacks and double chocolate brownies, which we cooked this morning. Every morning we, we try and bake as freshly as we can. You know, that rural farmhouse, rustic sort of cake. We actually find that our busiest period is when everyone's had their food. So we definitely get a, a later rush compared to everyone else, uh, which is nice. We can pace ourselves and get caffeined up ourselves. I was fascinated with the Rural Coffee Project's navy blue Land Rover coffee hut. Maybe it's because seeing all the street food vans in the city, you know, many of them, such as Steak and Honor's vans, Azahar, and Frank and Ling Ling Panan's vehicles, they're all converted Citroen H panel vans, which is fine. It's just nice to hear that roar of a Land Rover amongst them. Andy's even refurbished his dad's old trailer to go with it. That was built by my dad probably about five years before I was born. Which carries all the food and the coffees. Like four seasons in one day. Sadly, my dad got very ill with pancreatic cancer and we had 16 months of being in hospital. He passed away last year. This was sat in the garage and I thought, we painted it the colours of the truck, renovated all the wood and all the prop stands so it can stand up and be a display stand for our cakes and things. And yes, some people like the trailer better than they do the Land Rover. Before all this, Hannah was working in retail and Andy was doing personal training, boot camps and the like, across Cambridge. This is their first venture into the food scene, and they've ploughed everything into it. My sister said to me, would you rather look back in years to come? You've got three things you could say. Well, hey, it worked, or, oh, well, I tried it, but it didn't work, or what if I tried it? And for me, the what if was the only answer that I didn't really want to have to deal with. So I thought, well, there's only one way to, to do it, and let's, let's go for it, let's give it a go. The reason that we've done the Rural Coffee Project in the way that we have is because it is us. It is true to who we are. We, we are outdoorsy, rural people, and, and although we enjoy going into the city and, and experiencing all that, we always like to come back to the more rural areas. So. Coffee, cakes, flapjacks, tea, and a sheepdog. Oh, and a reference to my dodgy radio editing. 
touch my Land Rover and die. Who <laughs> <laughs> said that anyway? <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. Andy and Hannah Clark, it's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very yeah. much. <laughs> Thank you. And you're listening to Flavour on Cambridge 105 Radio. Crumbling like pastries, they scream. The worst things in life come free. And you can find out more about Andy and Hannah's venture and where they'll be appearing next from their website, ruralcoffeeprojects.co.uk, or via their Twitter feed at ruralcoffeeproj. We're taking a short break now, and we'll be back to hear what local chefs and foodies' best ever meal was. Tim Hayward talks what it's like reviewing restaurants, and Nikki Senyet talks about her book, Lateral Cooking. See you in two minutes. Cambridge 105 Radio. Cambridge Breakfast with Julian Clover and Lucy Malazzo. It's the breakfast show that's all about Cambridge. We've got the news. National and local. Travel updates. From the A14 to Milton Road and all stations to Cambridge. The people and the places. Plus guests in our Friday food club. Cambridge Juice. All the new things to do in the city. Our daily quiz. Oh yes, questions, questions with Lucian. And all request Jukebox Friday. And don't forget the coffee. Cambridge Breakfast with Julian Clover and Lucy Malazzo. Here with a fresh blend weekday mornings from 7. What's in your spare room? Christmas decorations? Maybe an old exercise bike? Could you give that room to a young person along with a fresh start? St Christopher's Fellowship is looking for people to become foster carers in Cambridgeshire to provide safe, caring homes for teenagers who need help. And because we've been working to improve young people's lives since 1870, you can trust that you're not on your own. You'll receive regular training, dedicated social worker support and space to share experiences with other carers. It's more than a spare room, it's a brighter future. Call 0800 234 6282 or visit stchris.org.uk fostering. St Christopher's, creating brighter futures. Hi, Pam here. Are you tired of the same old shops? Drop into Fantasia on Mill Road near Parker's Peace. Enter our treasure cave full of fine clothing and exotic homewares. Natural materials, uplifting ambiance, mood improvement guaranteed. Perk up your wardrobe, your home, your life. Dare to shop different. Fantasia, 64 Mill Road, Cambridge. Fantasia.uk.com. For opening times, please see fantasia.uk.com. Cambridge 105 Radio. Welcome back to Flavour. Over the years, we've been asking local chefs and foodies what their best ever meal was. Let's find out from first Alex Rushmer of Vanderlyle, then Gemma Whiting of the Linton Kitchen. Kate Holden of Provenance and Benny Pavarelli of Pint Shop and we'll tell you who the others are after the feature. I've been lucky enough to, to, to eat in some very very fine restaurants uh, there's a few dishes that spring to mind there was a dish I ate at Noma um, there was a there was a butternut squash dish with a fermented pearl barley sauce and it was absolutely sensational and it sort of it, it reminded me what it was possible to do with vegetables if they were cooked with, with care and attention. Um, so that's one dish that certainly stands out. Um, I also have very, very fond memories of a, a pad thai that I ate on the beach 
in, in, in Thailand when I was in Phuket and uh, we found this little food cart just on the back streets there was nobody else there it was there to serve a building site so it was a load of Thai builders and myself and my wife and um, we got this little polystyrene box of, of pad thai and, uh, and some sweet corn, some grilled sweet corn to go with it. And we ate it on the beach and it was a fantastic meal. Well, we went to a zero food waste restaurant in Brighton called Silo. Now their final dessert, we had the seven course taste menu. If you're ever there, £40, really good value for money. And I think they're on par, on, on par for a, a Michelin star, it's exceptional. We had a pumpkin seed ice cream with a fig leaf oil, candied fig leaves, and then it had dehydrated kelp and pine on top and then some seeds. And it was, I think, the most delicious thing I've ever eaten. But again, sweet. <laughs> uh, I think the, one of the most memorable things I've eaten was a celery sorbet in Ottolenghi's restaurant, Nopi. That was definitely a highlight. I was really, yeah, surprised. I really enjoyed that. It was a really fresh and refreshing way to finish the meal. It's the best thing I've ever eaten. It definitely is a changing thing. I think probably one of the best things and was a, uh, a venison biryani at Jim Carner in London. And so it came as the classic biryani with the pastry topping, but the restaurant was something else. Just beautiful service, kind of very classic drinks. And yeah, it was just delicious and just perfectly cooked. And the next thing actually was at the same company, but they've got a place called Brigadier's. And very simple, it was basically chicken chops, which is a chicken thigh that's still got the, the drumstick bone in there and then flattened out. And then it's just kind of char-grilled with a kind of coriander, smothered in coriander chutney and then served with some more coriander chutney. So beautifully and simple, but tasty. <laughs> and but the, but weirdly, the banana leaf um, laminated tables and stuff, but they do the most amazing hot fish curry like they would in Ke they have in Kerala, which I adore. And you can go there to get dosas, which are kind of a lentil pancake. And they fill them with a kind of potato-y, spicy mixture. So masala dosa. And you can have a masala dosa, just as you would in Kerala, <laughs> with a North Indian drink, a mango lassi. Oh, best combination. Favourite, my absolute favourite. Nicest meal I've ever eaten would probably at Le Manoir. Uh, a Quat Saison under Raymond Blanc. Well, that was about 10 years ago. All the good meals I've had is when I was in Chicago. I went to a linear and had a 12-course tasting menu there, which was absolutely superb, cooked by Grant Sanchez. And I appreciate the work that goes into providing a first-class menu as well and what it takes to get to that and to get it onto the plate. You know, the research into a dish, the preparing it and the execution to make it all perfect. Mm. Probably the best thing that I've eaten aside from cheese is a product that's very special to me which is a wild smoked salmon that is made down in West Cork in Ireland. It's made by a lady called Sally Barnes and she's the last smoker who will only smoke wild salmon. So every year we first of all have to ask her the question is there any salmon? And then the next question is, how much is there? And, and it, you know, it consequently costs a lot. It's, it's just a completely different product from regular smoked salmon. Tastes absolutely delicious. The texture is very different. And it just, for me, it's, a, it's one of those things where by I would be happy to eat no smoked salmon all year round and just have one piece of 
of Sally salmon a year, and that would do me. Um, it's f- available from the Woodcock Smokery in um, West Cork. And the last three contributors there telling us about their favourite food were food writer Lizzie Cunningham, Lee Cork catering manager at Clare College, and finally Susanna Wonsell of Meadows. Yeah, and the restaurant that Lizzie Cunningham mentioned there, the Banana Leaf, is at 20 Milton Road. And Gemma Whiting's favourite, Silo, in Brighton, has left Brighton and moved to Hackney Wick in East London. Also in that feature, you heard about Woodcock Smokery at West Cork in Ireland. Now, that smokery has since introduced salmon smoking day courses and tasting evenings too. They're running this summer, and if you'd like to know more, and, well, why wouldn't you after Susanna's wonderful description of the taste and quality of Sally's smoked salmon, do go online to woodcocksmokery.com. There's been a bit of a kerfuffle recently about a review Grace Dent wrote for The Guardian about Mikado Central in Green Street. It was critical, and people did not react well. I think it's the New York Times where the restaurant reviewers are expected to go to a restaurant on several occasions and eat the majority of the dishes on the menu before writing their review. That is a lot fairer, though much more costly for the newspaper. But what's it like being a restaurant reviewer? We asked Tim Haywood, who reviews for the Financial Times. Tim, when you do uh, restaurant reviews, how do you go about choosing the restaurant? So there's a there's a bunch of different ways they come through. I, ke- I keep a I keep a list, a target list, and so if I see something of interest uh, in general news or in social media, I'll make a note of it, check it out. Then there's obviously there's a fair amount of press release action with new places opening up, so I hear about those and see see those, and they go on my list. Unlike a lot of people, I don't have to be first in it's not it's not the it's not a big deal yeah. for me really I mean, i'd probably let most places settle for a few weeks at least before i bother some of the ones that you've chosen have been quite well to my eyes anyway quite obscure i mean there was a middle eastern restaurant near highbury corner in islington which uh, i haven't been to i haven't actually visited i haven't seen but it struck me as you know not being sort of top of most people's list people would be surprised i think that if you look at what restaurant reviewers actually review in the nationals very few of them are reviewing michelin star i mean i i haven't done a michelin star in two years and i was I'm trying to think the other day whether Marina or Jay or any of the others had, I don't think they have. I mean, that sort of stuff is not that relevant to our customers anymore. So we are looking for something that's a little bit different. Um, there are pressures on us. There's, there's, a, there's a very strong feeling that you know, we should be getting out and trying to, to reach other kinds of food, other sort of societal levels, I suppose. And um, yeah, that, that's, that's, the, that's the idea. So we, we do try and make it as, as strange as possible. Um, and and I, just, I, I just like throwing one in occasionally that's completely bonkers because I think that's just really entertaining. So when you're in the restaurant, when you've, you've got there, how often do they realise that, that it's you? You are a reviewer for a national daily of some repute? Depends. London ones, most of them have uh, their PR companies um, give them a list of the reviewers, uh, the critics, um, and they provide photographs, recent photographs of us, and they pin those up on the back of the door going through the dining room. Um, and so we could be spotted really, really easily. I, <laughs> I think I've been reviewing for a year or two before I actually got onto that list, and I was quite proud. A friend of mine was, um, uh, she was making a film in a restaurant, 
And she, she texted me and said, Tim, I just, I've just seen your picture on the back of the door. You've arrived, mate. I said, oh, that's, that's great. I'm really proud. I'm really proud. She said, yeah, except what they've written underneath. And I said, well, what was that? They said, looks like fat Corbin. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had to go back to that. May I say, I don't think that's true. I actually had to go back to that restaurant later on to review it. And uh, they knew who I was by that point. And like a shot, they were out all over the place. And it was a very good, very good restaurant, very good review, really enjoyed it. And at the end, I said to the very nervous waiter, do you really think I look like fat Jeremy Corbyn? And his face went absolutely ashen, but he still got a good review. But, okay, so you, but you've got to preserve your anonymity before you, before you get there. Yeah. So how, how'd, you go, how'd you go about that? I mean, presumably booking under another name. Yeah, so I've, I've got, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember how long the list is at the moment. I think I've got about, I've probably got about five names at the moment that I'm currently using to book through. They're all entirely fictional and you know, not, not sort of witty or clever or easy to spot or jokey. Yeah. Uh, they're just, you know, that's it. And, and I, I, I can set up email addresses very, very quickly. So I just basically, I just have an email address for this new name and set up a booking engine. Uh, one of, I'm going to download one of the booking apps uh, in that name and then book it in that name. And I go in and there's, there's no way they'll know it's me um, until they see me or until I put my credit card in at the end of the evening. But when they do spot, it, spot you, does the level of service change or do they take it in their stride normally? I, I've never seen any real evidence of anything sort of jumping about. I mean, I, I actually was in a restaurant once with a, an, another very, very much more famous restaurant critic who will remain nameless, was in the restaurant at the same time. Um, and it was uh, one of the uh, Corbin and King places. And actually, the entire restaurant ground to a halt because he was being served. Everybody was paying special attention to him and nobody else. And the people were getting quite grumpy about it. You know, they really, they, they couldn't get there. They couldn't get attention from their waiters because everybody was so nervous about this one guy. Um, so I think it depends on who you are. Um, I'm, quite a, I'm quite low down the, down the pecking order for, for reviewers, I think. Were you there as a reviewer as well in this restaurant? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, did you, did your two different, very different experiences uh, show in the in the reviews? <laughs> I think they did actually. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think things have changed recently, obviously, because we're not we're not really interested in doing bad reviews at the moment. Um, people don't want to read them. Um, it would be very unsupportive to do it. I'm not sure that I've ever seen a bad review from you. Well. Well, it's an interesting, interesting thought. I think most reviewers would prefer to write good reviews. We can choose where we go. So we choose nice places. We choose places we're likely to like. Um, but you can't really be credible and be 100% positive all the time. People won't take things seriously. And I think for many years, there's been a thing whereby a couple of times a year, you just put in a real stinker. But if you actually look at who the real stinkers are, um, they're very, very often some sort of either some incredibly poncy place in Knightsbridge that nobody will ever go to or some celebrity's vanity joint and they're just fair game. And yeah. so you find a place so, like that and you can really go to town. Right. So places whose, I suppose, livelihoods you're not going to undermine. Yes, very much. Very much that. And how do you feel yourself when you're going into a restaurant to review it? Are you, you know, is it eager anticipation? Is there an element of anxiety? I, th I think these days it's just, it's very, um, it's just very businesslike. 
yeah, go in, check the menu. It's fairly clear as you're going through the list which ones are going to give you a good story, which recipe, which uh, menu items are going to give you a good story. And you're, you know, you, if you're looking around and you spot a couple of interesting things about the room or the people in it or something along those lines, you make a note of that in your head. And by the time you've got a couple of talkable menu items and a couple of nice things to say about the room, you know, you're not that far off being, you know, your, your, your word count's done. So you, you, you just need to, I think you, you're, you're looking for the, you're looking for the, for the hits and the wins. And then once you've got those, you can sit and relax more. You relax into it. And then often, more often, more interesting stuff comes up. Well, your reviews often contain quite a lot of detail about the, you know, the cooking. So mm. is that because of your own knowledge or are you, are you a reviewer that asks a lot of questions of the staff? I would ask questions of the staff if I couldn't work it out myself. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, um, I think it's my job to know how these things are done. Um, it's their job to be able to inform me if I need to know, but that's 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 where that comes from. And I, and I do think there's. I mean, I've always been very conscious that there is a there is a comment that's made about some of the top level uh, reviewers that it was they were writing more about themselves than about the about the restaurant or about the food. And I've never felt terribly comfortable with that. So I've I just I've always measured on the food um, and the, and the, the event and the pleasure of it um, for that reason. Do they take long to write? Well, it's a, <laughs> I suppose the thing about being a writer, people always say you, you spend remarkably little time writing, but you spend your whole time being the writer. Um, so what I'll tend to do is do the review, come out, make a few notes. Um, I'll have usually shot the menu for reference into my phone, and then I'll probably just sit on it for a few days thinking about it. Something will come to mind as a sort of a lead paragraph, a lead into it. Um, and then the time comes and I've got the time to do it, I'll sit down and probably bang it out in an hour. Oh, really? Wow. Mm. But then that, that, and that then sits there on the desk for two more days. And at the end of that time, you go back over it, tweak it, make it look better, make it look more interesting. Um, and then you leave it overnight and file the following morning. Are there any constraints on how much you spend? Um, I do have uh, an upper limit. If I break it, because I've gone somewhere really exceptional and strange. I'll either pick up the extra myself because I wanted to do it because it was wonderful or I'll negotiate it back with my boss and say, come on, I've given you two sandwich shops in Coventry in the last two months. You know, it's a bad time. You've got to, you're going to cover me for the rest of this. That sometimes works. So I, I usually stay in under the, under the budget. And that was Tim Haywood. We have reviewed all kinds of cookery books here on Flavour, but one of the more unusual ones is Lateral Cooking by Nikki Senyet. It's an extraordinary book which focuses on some basic types of dish and then extends them into related dishes so that you first establish an understanding and then learn to experiment. The chapter on nuts, for example, begins with a nut sauce telling you how to make a basic one then it explains how it can be varied by using different ingredients and then how to extend it to make a nut stuffing, a nut dressing, as a garnish for soups, as a filling for omelettes and how it can be used in empanadas. I visited Nikki in her Islington home and asked her about the book. Nikki, tell me a little bit more about your most recent book and why did you decide to write it? <laughs> Uh, well, I don't think you ever decide to write it. It just kind of happens organically. And actually, this one did happen very organically because I was um, was writing the Flavour Thesaurus and uh, because I wasn't experienced in adapting recipes or I didn't know how to kind of cook without them, 
when I was testing lots of unusual flavor combinations, then I found myself needing um, a book of elastic recipes. So sort of basic forms that I could then apply flavor combinations to in order to try them together and, and then write about them for that book. And so I went off um, to buy this book of uh, yeah, elastic recipes, as I thought of them, or skeleton recipes is mm. what they originally, I was originally thinking. And I couldn't find anything. So uh, I just kept a file of my own notes. So it would include very, you know, just very basic stuff. Like if I, save for soda bread, thinking about how would I, how would I flavor some soda bread, then I might note down if I came across a recipe by a famous chef that was a flavor variation of a soda bread, or if I had tried it myself with a bit of sweet potato, you know, in it instead of some of the flour, then I'd just note down how that went. Uh, and then what would happen on a more practical level, something like, oh, I haven't got any bicarbonate of soda today. What, how much baking powder would, would, would I need to use instead? Because obviously they can't be directly substituted for each other. Uh, some recipes for soda bread include an egg and others don't. So I would try it with an egg and note down the difference. So I started to expand this, you know, this collection of files for, my, for the using, using the flavor thesaurus into something that was a bit bigger and then fill in some of the gaps of things that I hadn't necessarily tackled for the flavor thesaurus. And that file became natural cooking. Mm. But this has taken a little while to create, hasn't it? It really has, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, I suppose that little file, um, you know, it, when the flavour source went to print, I had this file and I didn't quite realise how much fleshing out it would need. But in my head also at the beginning, lateral, it wasn't lateral cooking. It was a book about how to flavour lots of different basic um, kitchen preparations, recipes, dishes, whatever you want to call them. So it would be how to, you know, how to flavour a soda bread, as I say, or how to flavour ice cream. Lots and lots of different ways of taking a basic idea in different directions. Uh, and it was only really about half, it was sort of four years in the mix. And then I started to think about how I was going to organise all those starting point recipes when um, I came across the idea of perhaps you know dividing them into groups and then within the groups dividing the recipes into uh, onto, onto a continuum for example it takes uh, you know if you start with a very basic baked custard what does it take to turn that into a creme caramel what does it take to turn a creme caramel into creme brulee they're all like little steps away mm. from each other so I just found it really useful having cooked for a really long time being a very experienced cook I had no idea that you could, uh, you know, you that these tweak. things, yeah, mm. that you could tweak certain preparation and, and also what you could learn about cooking by understanding those things in relation to each other. So if you are, you know, if you're making a, a creme caramel and it's a, a baked custard made of milk and whole eggs, then if you make the same kind of basic baked custard but you use just yolks and cream, then you make a creme brulee. Then you completely understand what the yolk and what the white and what the milk and what like mm. what the what what difference does it make to use those kind of things? So when you look at Mar I'm quite interested in looking at people's recipes and then deconstructing them, knowing exactly. what I know now. Yeah. 
I can see that the reason that Marcus Waring's custard tart is a five-star gold award winner is because it's a creme brulee set in a pastry case. Of course, Yum. that's going to be much nicer <laughs> than, you know, your nan's, uh, you know, milk and a couple of eggs. Made with skim milk, possibly. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, possibly made with yeah. grey skim milk. Yeah. So... So that's what the book, the book. So, and then in order to plot them on the continuums and make them as useful as possible, uh, so taking custard again as an example, I had to bring everything in line with each other as much as possible, make one point constant where possible. So, the, in the custard section, everything is 250 ml or 500 ml of milk or cream. And that way, it makes it easier for the user or the reader to understand how the different ingredients are working in relation to each other. And in fact, you know, once you've got a couple of those basic ideas in your head about custard, it's very easy to go off and make any kind of baked custard or quiche or, you know, to riff on bread and butter pudding, all those kind of things that are custard based meals. You only need to know how much egg it takes to set the milk and how much, uh, you know, and what heat you know, mm. to keep the to keep mm. the heat down with all custards unless you put flour in it. Kind of once you know that, yes, off you go, and yeah. then you can start. You know, it's not always going to work out if you start pushing the boundaries, but I mean, certainly as far as custards concerned, really useful thing to know. You know, you can start to get creative with it because the great thing about custard is it's very amenable to all sorts of flavours and additions and twiddling around, mm. which sometimes we want to do. Sometimes exactly. we don't want to do it. Sometimes we do. I mean, I've written it like the flavour thesaurus because that's. I mean, I write it like the book I want it. I want to read. So, I mean, it could be someone could write a very similar thing, I guess, in a much more scientific way with black and white, um, you know, fig one, fig two kind of. It doesn't work for me because I tend you know I want I suppose I want to read food writing that is more in line with Nigella's How to Eat or MFK Fisher's books or Nigel Slate you know that I'm interested in food and understanding cooking in a appetizing lyrical context exactly rather I don't don't need to I don't get excited by reading about unraveling of proteins in gelatin well it's useful I'm sure but But, I don't I kind of don't need to know I really need to know how much leaf gelatin I need to set a certain amount of liquid and a, a few more bits and pieces of understanding that's more useful to me more fun exactly That was Nikki Segnet, who we hear is now working on a third book, which is something to look forward to. And this, of course, is Green Onions signalling the start of our jobs section. Van der Lyle in Mill Road has a vacancy for a full-time or part-time front of house. The pay is £9.50 an hour, with a share of tips, and the hours are 5 until 10.30ish from Wednesday to Saturday, with alternate Saturday nights replaced by a Saturday lunchtime shift. There's a company pension scheme. Experience in hospitality or customer service is preferred. Enthusiasm for food and drink is essential. Apply through a direct message on Twitter or via the contact link on the Vandelisle website. Lila Tina Bustarante needs a front of house and kitchen assistant. Take your CV to them in the Grafton Centre or send via direct message on Twitter or Instagram. Midsummer House is looking for a member of their front of house team. Send your CV via email to Nicole. The address is admin at midsummerhouse.co.uk. 
Some jobs in brief now. Check the relevant social media or website for full details, or you can try popping in at a quiet time to ask. Cam's Cuisine has a vacancy for a kitchen porter at the Cambridge Chop House in King's Parade. Experience is not essential. The Ivy in Trinity Street has vacancies for a chef and a commie chef. Chefs at all levels and kitchen assistants are required at the Kwai Mill Hotel and Spa. There are several vacancies at the university colleges. Wolfson and Downing have a vacancy for a chef de partie. The pay in both colleges is £23,000 a year. And Unum College requires a cafe food supervisor at £21,000 a year. And that's all the time we have for today. Don't forget, we are here on alternate Saturdays at 12 noon, then again on Mondays at 6pm and Thursdays at 2pm. And there is also a podcast, which will be available early in the next week. Coming up on Cambridge 105 Radio today is Sports Special with Ollie Slack. And tonight, at 8 o'clock, Rock of Ages with Paul Christoforu looks at the history of the Cambridge Folk Festival. An unmissable programme. But that's all from us. We'll be back on the 14th of August. But until then, goodbye. 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 Goodbye.